Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. On today's episode, Brett Ken and I discuss the changes afoot in Python packaging as a result of PEP 517 and 518, starting with how did we get here and where are we going? We discussed flit, poetry, talks, continuous integration, the demise of setup.py, manifest.in, and requirements.txt. How does this affect pipenv, and will pipenv ever use the pipeproject.toml? What are lock files, and will lock files ever be standardized? We talk about workflows, we talk about applications versus libraries, dependency resolution, deployment dependencies versus development dependencies, and all sorts of packaging fun like that. I think it's a fun conversation, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Testing Code, and uh, I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. Before we get into it too much, who is Brett Cannon? Who is Brett Cannon? It's a complicated question. Uh, so in terms of a day job, I am the dev lead for the Python extension for VS Code. Uh, in terms of a spare time thing, I am the I am a core developer on Python and have been for over 15 years now. Uh, I got my commitment rights uh, the same month as the first PyCon US back in 2003, when at least the first conference named PyCon. Uh, if you really want to go deep, uh, I have a PhD in computer science from the University of British Columbia. Uh, I got my master's degree from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo down in Central Coast of California. Then I have a bachelor's in philosophy uh, from UC Berkeley. So I managed to get my uh, two of my alma maters to be covered by the two co-founders of the of Jupiter Notebooks. So that's kind of handy. I guess PhD is cool. Eh. The philosophy to computer science. Yeah. How did that happen? So uh, I went to junior college uh, in the States, Pasadena City College specifically. And uh, when I started, my mother made me promise her that I would take a class in philosophy and a class in computer science, knowing well, she knew that I would love the subjects. So I did, and she was completely right. I loved both subjects. And I actually tried to double major but unfortunately, I was given some bad information about how the UC system has it. I, I wasn't told that the UC system has a unit cap. So after I did a double major workload in junior college and I applied to get uh, into the University of California school system, I found out I had so many units trying to make the double major work that if I applied to the CS department and didn't get in, I actually would end up not having enough unit space to graduate with a degree. Or oh. I got kicked out of the school. Okay. So it was either major in computer science or major in philosophy. And this was in um, January of 2000 when I started. And so it was like, okay. And so boom time. So it was like, okay, either I can get a degree in philosophy just for fun and then still take some CS courses under the unit cap and then still get a job or go for CS, hope I get in. And if I don't, I'm in deep trouble. So I took the safer route at the time. Uh, obviously, the boom did not last, um, and I decided, yeah, you know what? Um, I come from a family of teachers, and so I thought, all right, maybe I want to be a professor. Let's go do the PhD thing. So that's how I ended up doing a master's degree. I kind of treated it as a junior college towards the PhD because not a single PhD program would accept me. <laughs> uh, but luckily, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo's application date was late enough that I had already become a core developer. 
And so I was able to put that on my uh, application, and then they accepted me. And then so I did went there, got my master's, and with that I was able to apply to uh, PhD program at UBC and get in there. Nice. Yeah. So you didn't really switch from philosophy to computer science. You were doing the both all kind of all along. Yeah, and it was actually helpful. I mean, philosophy re- teaches you how to think logically. And uh, in terms of open source, it's surprisingly helpful to be able to understand where there's potential fallacies in people's arguments when you're having to discuss things, how to have informed, insightful discussions without yelling. There's some good actual people skills that you can pick up in a philosophy degree that have turned out to be surprisingly useful in open source. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised at the, I don't know why I'm surprised, but the amount of people skills required to program a computer uh, yeah. is, is uh, amazing. It is definitely way above zero. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I used to joke that I didn't get into computer science because I like to be around people. Um, yeah. But, jokes on you, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so when did you, when did you get into Microsoft? Uh, so I've been at Microsoft now since July of 2015. So it's been about three years. Okay. Uh, in a bit. Uh, prior to that, I was at Google for about four and a half years, and then prior to that was grad school. Okay. Timeline-wise, you were you were already a core contributor for Python during your master before your master's program. Then, so you've been doing Python for a long time. Yeah, actually, uh, I yeah, <laughs> a long time. So yeah, I actually got my uh, commit rights when I, I took a year off between my undergrad and uh, grad school, figuring I needed to kind of develop a uh, programming. CV, as it were, to kind of show grad programs that, hey, I might not have a bachelor's in computer science, but I do know how to program. And so I just figured open source would be a good way to kind of prove that. And that's how one of the ways I ended up getting involved with Python. I had, I got into the Python cookbook and I had a recipe I wanted to uh, upstream. And so I emailed them, uh, emailed Python dev, asked, how do I do this? They explained it. I did it. It got in. And I had the year off and I enjoyed the experience and I wanted to get more into open source. So I just stayed on, got more and more involved, sort of like the Python dev summaries, which let me know about issues that needed a fix before anyone else. And I had the time to do the fixes with basically no job. And so I just was able to get more and more involved and just get to know the code base more and more to the point where I said, Hey, I can fix this. I just need someone to merge the patch. And then we were just like, Oh, well, do you want commit rights? Like, <laughs> Sure. I said, okay, someone will flip the bit. And then <laughs> the bit got flipped, and cool. I got my commit rights. The rest is history. The rest is history. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the preferred cloud platform of hundreds of thousands of innovative companies. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, manage, and scale applications with an intuitive control panel and API designed for developers. Get started with a free $100 credit towards your first project on DigitalOcean and experience everything the platform has to offer, such as cloud firewalls, real-time monitoring and alerts, global data centers, object storage, and the best support anywhere. Join the over 150,000 businesses already creating amazing things on DigitalOcean. Claim your credit today at do.co slash testingcode. So you um, you were one of the guests on our 100th episode of Python Bytes, and thank you for doing that. Oh, that was a lot of fun. 
It was a lot of fun. And one of the things I brought up was this, this, um, was poetry and we, and you filled us in a little bit on there. And I, I don't want to try to, we don't really need to cover all that again, but I also don't want to assume that people have, have listened to that episode, uh, even though they probably have. Um, but anyway, um, the, I didn't, I guess I, when I stumbled into, so poetry is a tool for, for, for packaging it, I guess it's, it's, it's more than that, but there is, there's this bigger story and this bigger story is there's, there's changes afoot in what's going on with packaging with Python. And I guess the learning about that actually opened up way more questions that, that I had than, that it answered them. So, um, I don't even really know how to crack this open. So when did there's, both poetry and fled, and as far as I can tell, those are the. There may be other packages or projects, but I'm not. I don't know of them that um, that use a pyproject.toml file instead of a setup.py file. Correct. And um, but it's more than that. It um, so I, the pyproject.toml is is not just a replacement for the setup.py. It's also it also uh, does it. I think what else does it get rid of? Did, did... So probably the best way to jump into this is to kind of explain the way the world used to be and basically how we want to change that to make it into the world that we want it to be. And that's usually how I break into this conversation. Okay. So the way the world everyone's used to is setup tools and uh, setup.py file, right? And at least at this point, everyone's familiar with wheels. Eggs seem to have finally gone away enough that I don't really need to get into that. Um, but everyone thinks the way you like uh, build your package into a wheel is you basically go Python, setup.py, bdist under wheel. And yeah. that's it. And it's all set up tools, and that's how it is. The problem with that story is a couple of issues. Uh, one is... It's the only story set up tools, right? That's very restrictive for the uh, ecosystem where anything anyone wants has to somehow work with set up tools or it has to be in set up tools or else tough. It just won't work. People just don't expect or work with any other tool. And so if set up tools can't do what you want, you're just in a real tight bind. Uh, the other problem is setup.py. Um, is not really a structured thing. It's just a convention of naming a file that Python will execute that will take commands that we, once again, on convention, will accept that will somehow lead to a wheel being produced. Right. right? Which is also restrictive in terms of, okay, well, how do I introspect that? Well, you can't. The only way to really introspect that is either parse the AST of that file or shim in setup tools, import that module, fake out what uh, setuptools.setup does, and then introspect on what gets passed in as the argument to that huge function. So basically, the packaging world ended up in this really restricted position by accident of everything has to be set up tools, and thus everything has to be set up.py. And it's just, it doesn't really allow for improvements, right? Like, um, Justin Ingram uh, just posted his slides to a talk he gave that was really good. Where he basically said, "Like, yeah, we actually have a uh, we have a really 
good. We just forget it because it's been such a long slog to get here from the early 2000s to today. But there are things that we have to do in order to allow for evolution, to allow things to improve. So we're definitely not at our best necessarily, but we're not horribly off. But how do we get from pretty good to great? And one of the things you have to do is you have to allow for innovation and um, more or less break the set of tools shackles, as you were. And so that's what led to PEP 518 and 517. So PEP 518 is what defines PyProject.toml. And what that did was, all it did was allow you to specify your build dependencies for your project. And that's all it did. Um, And it happened to bring in this concept of PyProject.toml as a file format. And it left it open in terms of how other tools could add their own metadata to the file. But really, its only goal was to be able to say, you know what, you can now specify what is required to build your wheel. Okay. So because before this, uh, you just, like PIP, just assume setup tools, right? It will literally just inject setup tools when it runs setup.py because it just knows almost everyone's going to do that. But there's no really other option. How do you take an SDIST with PIP and say, hey, make me a wheel with PIP wheel? Well, before... PyProject.toml, there wasn't really a way. Um, actually, funny enough, Setup Tools has an argument to say build requires, but how do you tell what build requirements you have unless you already have installed Setup Tools to run it to then tell you what the build requirements are? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a problem. So there needed to be a way to statically specify up front that, hey, my project happens to use Flit or Poetry or what have you. Ensconce is another one. How do I say that? And so with PyProject.toml, you can specify in that file that, hey, my build requirements is I depend on Flit to build. Hmm. And it's basically all PIP 518 did. Okay. And then we built on top of that. And when I say we, this is the royal we of uh, the members of the disutils SIG mailing list. And um, PEP 517 came about where we took that the next step and said, okay, here is the API that a build tool must implement and you get to specify the entry point and what can happen is your build tool can then or like pip for instance can go like okay with pep 518 here's what i have to install to build and then with pep 517 it looks in this same pyproject.toml and it goes okay now i know what code i have to call in these build in this build tool to actually make your wheel and that breaks this, the dependency on setup tools now. Now, that's not saying you can't keep setup tools, right? You can still say, hey, my build dependency is setup tools. And then all you need to do in your pyproject.toml would be to say, okay, call setup tools.pyproject setup or what have you, and it would work. But it also means I can use flit if I want or poetry or anything else, and it still will lead to that ultimate wheel, which is the true end artifact that you really want to be installing anyway. So um, I guess to just clarify a little bit, so it's, it's, uh, it's not Flit that's uh, completely creating the wheel. It's, it's an interaction between Flit and PIP or whatever your tool is and PIP or... PIP is driving the building, but Flit is doing the actual production. Okay. So if you do... So if you're running PIP 10 or newer, what happens is if you do PIP wheel and your project what happens is is um 
pip will read your private project.toml, go, okay, you depend on Flit. It will create a virtual environment, install Flit into it, and then read the section of the private project.toml that specifies the uh, interface for the build tool and go like, okay, I want you to build me a wheel. Okay, that requires calling flit.main with its main function or something. Okay, but you specify then, that in the Tomwell file. Exactly. Okay. And then pip will literally just call that function in your virtual environment, and then that will emit a wheel, and then pip is then able to just install that wheel. Okay. And uh, that all those that API and the extensions that allow for flit to exist... It could be anything then. So I could um, mm-hmm. I could create my own like branch of Flit or branch of Poetry or Ensconce or, or even just make up my own as long mm-hmm. as it... Okay, that's cool. Yeah, as long as you provide an API that is compatible with what PIP 517 outlines, tools like PIP that need to like go like, all right, I have, a, I have an SDIS, right? I download a tar.gz file from PyPI. How do I make that into a wheel that I can install? And you you said something um, uh, during our conversation in in Python Bytes that a wheel when okay so that's how to build a wheel but when somebody wants to do like pip install the wheel um, once it's built um, that doesn't need a, like a packager to do that other than pip correct so this is all about building right this is all about how do you get to the final built artifact that's a wheel. Installing a wheel is a completely separate project. This is this this is a um, key point that trips a lot of people up, and it takes a while to. I know it took me a while to get separated in my head, because really what you're caring about is there's the packager, like you as the person who's going to distribute this package on PyPI. You kill you. You're the one that cares about making a wheel to make available to users, but your users shouldn't have to care about any of that. All they care about is the actual wheel they're going to install. Okay. So PyProject.toml does not extend beyond the actual build step of your project. Okay. I'm a little confused still. <laughs> um, not a problem. The, um, the, one of the things that you specify is the, your de- package dependencies. Yep. And how, so somewhere in the wheel, those are listed somewhere that, um, mm-hmm. that they can be pulled out later uh, by PIP? Yeah, so the way it works is is your tool lets you specify. So the tools, uh, like Flit, for instance, have you specify your dependencies in their own way, right? Like uh, Flit, for instance, has its own uh, Flit section in the PyProject.toml, yeah. and you can specify your requires there. And that's the normal thing, just like in your requirements.txt file or something, where you would say, like, okay, I depend on Brian's cool PyTest plugin yeah. version something. When the wheel gets built, wheels have metadata in them. And one of the pieces of metadata, I can't remember which file it's in right off the top of my head. Um, but there's a file where those build, those dependencies get specified as, I believe, um, a dis-requires key. And in that metadata, it says, okay, here are my dependencies. It's on... Brian's awesome PyTest plugin version blank, and it supports all the normal markers and everything you could put in there in your dependencies, such as Python version dependencies and all that stuff. And all that gets packaged in and put into the wheel and its metadata. Okay. So that's why it's a separation. So the 
build tool has you specify it however the build tool wants, but the wheel, because the wheel format's completely standardized, um, all the build tools will know how to write that appropriate metadata into the wheel file so that when PIP or whatever installer you're using gets your wheel, it can open it up and go like, okay, I've got the wheel now and I know what files it has and where those files need to go, but what other things do I have to grab? And they can read the metadata and go, okay, this thing wants this, this, and this, and then that's when it can go back up to PyPI and start doing its dependency resolution and all that stuff. Okay. But that's all a separate specification just for wheels. Okay, but that, but so wheels don't have like all the dependencies built into them. They just have references to um, to what their dependencies are, and they, those are grabbed later during install, right? Uh, typically, I mean, you can technically build a massive wheel just for yourself to deploy all your dependencies at once. Uh, I've heard people do that as that's their deployment story is they actually build a one massive wheel that represents their, their code plus all their dependencies. And they push that up to their server and then the server just installs that one massive wheel. Okay. But correct. Wheels are designed such that they can just contain the code for that package that it represents and then just list what it depends on. And then pip or uh, whatever other tool you're using to do the install, pipenv, they can do dependency resolution as necessary to figure out, okay, well, you specified you depend on that, so we'll go figure out what the best version for that is, grab that wheel, then that wheel's going to have its own dependencies, you just keep doing it to figure out all the dependencies you need, and then pip, for instance, will just install all of them. Okay. Well, this, this is cool. It has ripple effects um, mm-hmm. that kind of go all over the place. Uh, like uh, that I was noticing as it, as I was trying to play with all this after we recorded, um, there's some hiccups that people are still trying to figure out. Like um, talks, for instance, is just, just recently supported. I think just recently supported uh, being able to use non setup tools packages. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's got to go off and uh, one of the things that talks does is, uh, is, is, package your wheel for you to test that part um and uh that it that so it has to know how to do that um Mm -hmm. um in so it's there's i'm i'm assuming there's other ripples like when i look in other places like there's got to be we've had setup.py for a long time so people just kind of assume it's there and it might not be um I don't know how this affects like uh, continuous integration servers or Jenkins or, or not Jenkins, but like Travis. Um, do you know if they're dealing with those already or? So it really depends on the tools, right? So for instance, on Travis, it's not too much of an issue because on Travis, you, you, you're usually just running pip install. And as long as your pip install is new enough and you can always just do a quick pip uh, Python dash M pip install dash u pip and just have pip update itself that'll take care of this potential issue okay. now it talks it uh i believe they may have just landed uh support for this i know they've been working on it and looking at it and they're aware of it uh but yes this is much like anything else at this scale because the python community is just so big at this point and set up to pi has been used for so long it's going to take some time now the one thing that can be said is it is possible to actually generate uh, setup.py shims. So like Flit, for instance, tries to do this, and it will actually spit out a setup.py that you can actually just call for tooling that hasn't been updated. Because like if you have a shell script, 
for instance, that's just going to call setup.py blindly and you just haven't been up, bothered to update it to call pip, install our pip wheel or what have you. Um, their tools can theoretically spit out a setup.py that will provide backwards compatibility as necessary to make that work. But okay. you're right, there is knock-on effects and it's going to take time to flow through uh, people's tool chains and get all the tools updated that are doing build steps to start using this and yeah. developing libraries to help with this and all that. So it's very much a multi multi year process to get this to a point where it becomes the thing everyone uses, but it's, it's been interesting. Um, tools have picked up on this pretty quickly. For instance, black, uh, the code formatter already has you, uh, specify uh, rules in a pyproject.toml file. Uh, Town Crier, which is a uh, chain log uh, file generator, has you specified uh, settings in your pyproject.toml. So it's gotten pretty quick uh, leaf uh, usage of the tool people's build tool chains and that kind of level. It's just taking time to build up to uh, the tools like talks and stuff where they're actually doing the actual build calls and getting them to start doing the appropriate thing when they're uh, faced with the pyproject.toml. It's good to have all this stuff allowed in the pyproject.toml because we were kind of getting a proliferation mm -hmm. of configuration files. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and being able to use one with people just having a different section, that's awesome. And yeah. I, I'm all for it. Uh, one of the things that... Um, uh, we used to have with setup tools is like extra files, like uh, uh, the manifest file that could specify like to package your readme with it and to your documentation or something. Mm -hmm. Is that part of this also? Does uh, the pyproject.toml allow that? So it allows it in so much as it is up to the build tools to choose how you are going to specify that. So remember, the file only specifies how lets you specify what your build tool dependencies are, and then how to call your build tool. But how your build tool asks you to specify, like how do I include the license file, for instance, yeah. or the README, that's between you and the build tool. Okay. So uh, as you said, setup tools happens to have their manifest.in file, and maybe set of tools will keep that when they go over for pyproject.toml completely or setup.cfg or who knows. Uh, but Flit, for instance, has no concept of this. Well, the way Flit does it, at least with their SDISs, is Flit will package everything that is actually in version control. So right. Flit asks Git to tell it, okay, what's been committed? Because that's probably what you want to end up in your SDIST, which is where you really want these files to end up. And then it's able to then have you say, okay, well, here's what I want in my wheel. Usually you just specify the package and then it just knows, all right, well, the package is this directory. So pull in everything in that directory. Hmm. And that's how it makes the decision. So Flit says, like, yeah, you know what? Forget manifest.in and having to remember to update that so you don't forget to include your license file because someone's bound to ask you, hey, I need the license file in here. It just says, all right, anything that's committed, that goes into the SDIST. Okay, just so can you use Flit with non-Git projects then? Uh, I honestly don't know what its support is for something like Mercurial or Subversion. Okay, um, not that it matters too much, but I, I did notice that when I was playing, tried to play with it just um, with a 
with some files that weren't checked in and into anything, um, it said, oh, yeah, I can't do that because there's nothing committed. Uh, it surprised me that there was a version control dependency. But Yeah, so that's the exact reason. It basically allowed um, Thomas Cloyver, the creator and uh, contributor to Jupyter, to basically say, yeah, you know what? I don't like manifest.in, and the way I run all my projects, everything that's c- committed is really what should be in the sdist anyway. Yeah. So you know what? I'm just going to make that the rule. Is <laughs> If you don't want it to be in, add it to your .git ignore, and otherwise it's going into the sdist. And that rule as so i mean on all the projects i've used flit on it's actually worked out really well it's actually kind of helpful uh to yeah. me as well it, it cleans out some cruft um the one of the things that i okay so this a side thing is uh that well how does this how does this interact or does it interact with um pip env and piffin or pip files and pip file lock files and stuff like that so it doesn't so when we first created pip 518 uh, and this whole concept of pyproject.toml, it was actually originally scoped to just libraries. So just stuff you would put up on PyPI basically is the way to differentiate versus an app where you would deploy it to your server, for instance. Okay. Right. So basically Originally, PyProject.toml was designed specifically for the use case of sharing of uh, shareable, redistributable artifacts, specifically wheels. And then pipm was created with its pip file concept for apps, right? Things you're not going to put up on PyPI and redistribute. It's just going to be something you deploy somewhere. And so there originally were designed for two separate use cases. Now we have subsequently based on how all the tools basically started to ignore the fact that PyProject.toml was specifically designed for libraries and started to use it for uh, apps as well. Uh, specifically poetry completely ignored that. And then other tools um, that you would potentially want to use with uh apps and not just libraries such as town crier and black because you might run black on your libraries but you might also want to run it on your app code uh made us loosen that and just make it just say project and it's no longer specified to that but that's the key reason pip file for pipm is exists and is separate from pyproject.toml because it was originally designed for a separate use case that pyproject.toml was kind of uh pulled into also supporting okay well I mean, I have to be on the. I'm, I'm an. I've never really quite understood the separation. Uh, to be honest, I I, I get it for uh, this is an like a, a Django application uh, versus a library that's only used for import. But then we've already specified some things like like uh, poetry, flit, black. These are things that you do pip install, but you use them as a tool. Right. So, but they're not something you would norm. They're still something that would go up on PyPI. Okay. So, so usually the rule is originally the breakup was library is something that goes up on PyPI. Apps are stuff that you wouldn't put up there. So oh, okay. That's the general rule of thumb I use in my head to differentiate between the two because it is obviously very funny and there's no real clear cut definition, but it's basically. Am I going to be sharing this with 10 different people on the planet and that's one up on PyPI or is this just for me 
or just for this specific case, and I'm never going to put it up on PyPI. That's the difference in my head between library and app. Okay. Um, now, having said all that, there has been talk about what the future is. I've had informal discussions on Twitter between uh, the maintainer of Poetry and the maintainers of PipEnv because in my brain, uh, the ultimate uh, the the artifact that a build tool will emit for a library is a wheel file because that is standardized. It specifies its dependencies. It's got all your code. It's fast to install. Like I wish every project out there built a wheel file that was going to be a library up on PyPI. Like I to the point that I sometimes wish we had a requirement that you have to up, you have to upload wheel files. I didn't know that you, it wasn't. No, it's not. You can totally just upload S disks. Okay. Um, now, having said that, for an app, that's typically that's not what you really want. What you really want, what I find, at least in my experience, is you really want that lock file. Like in PipM's case, right? It's not the pip file you want. It's that pip file dot lock that specifies. Okay, when I take my code and I deploy it, here are all my exact dependencies I need you to install on the server or here are all the dependencies I need to have in with Pi installer to pull in for to go with my code to then distribute out to the world as a desktop app, for instance. So the lot. Okay. So just the, uh, if, if, if people new to the conversation, a lock file is some sort of, you don't actually want to read it. It's some sort of format that a tool can read that specifies the exact version of the dependencies that I need to install. Is that right? Exactly. So if you're using pip, for instance, that's what pip freeze generates. It generates a requirements.txt file that lists every single thing you have installed so that when you go uh, try to install all that stuff that you've built up in your virtual environment, there is no questioning of what version to grab. Pip freeze will have written a requirements.txt file that specifies down to the um, bug fix version exactly what you want pulled in and installed. And then in pip in pipm's case it's a pip file.lock. Uh, in poetry's case it's a pyproject.lock. Uh, if you're from npm it's the same as a uh, package lock.json file. Pretty much every community has kind of come to the conclusion that lock files are good for this kind of use case. The problem we have is we haven't standardized that lock file yet. Yeah. So the and I'd like to get us there. Okay, so the I did notice that Poetry does a, a pyproject.lock, and that sounds all official because it's just like pyproject.toml. It's just a .lock. But that's that's not a standard specification. That's uh, the Poetry's definition. Yeah, the, uh, the maintainer of Poetry, and I'm sorry, uh, his name escapes me right now. Um, he decided... So he knew he needed a lock file for apps because Poetry supports both libraries and applications. And since there was no standard, he decided to basically make another Toml file, another Toml file that specified all the uh, dependencies for your app that way. Okay. While pip file, because it started with a separate file, created their pip file lock file. But there is no specification anywhere in the Python community as to uh, a specification or uh, through a pep specifying this is how we will specify our lock files. And I've had this discussion on Twitter. Uh, people seem amenable to the idea if we can meet people's needs. It's kind of tricky because Python is so 
supportive cross-platform to go like, okay, generate me a lock file. Well, okay, well, this might be your lock file here on Windows, but that won't necessarily be your lock file like on your Linux VM. Oh, really? Okay. Because they're going to resolve differently, right? Because some things are going to say like, hey, this is like an optional dependency on Windows to get you something faster. Like this is like a weird accelerated like NTFS support thing. While over here, this will get you faster something on Linux. And so it can totally vary, right? As soon as you have like, um, or Pi version, right? Like you might be running 3.7 locally, but your cloud might be 3.6 or something weird. So you could have multiple log files. I, who knows? That's yeah. the real question. Is yeah. do you do them separate based on Python version or OS? Do you do it in one and you just have to potentially specify the target you're building a lock file for? Do you try to build the penultimate lock file that covers all potential cases so that it doesn't matter what platform you're on, you're going to pull them all in? Okay, it's it, it's an unknown question. Uh, it's a question with no answer yet because no one has started this work yet. It's just kind of sitting there waiting for someone to have the time and motivation to start really having that conversation to start working towards that. But in my head, uh, wheels give us the artifact we want for libraries. But for me, the artifact for apps is this lock file. Okay. Just haven't taken the to standardize that yet. Cause we just got, like libraries in a good place in terms of getting them out of the uh, restriction of only considering set of tools. Okay. Um, I got a, a few more questions, but I just looked up the, uh, so I don't have to splice it in later. It looks like it's Sebastian Eustace. Is that right? Okay. Um, with it, with kind of an entertaining uh, black and white picture. I love black and white pictures um, on his GitHub profile. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the lock file, it um, who uses the lock file? Does so? Does poetry use it, or when when you're using poetry? So if it's tool dependent, it must be the. How do you use it? Yeah. So the way it typically works is you you start specifying your dependencies, right? So um, to go with poetry, you in your pyproject.toml, you would specify or pip file for pipenv. You specify where dependencies are. You download all your depend. It'll Download all your dependencies, and then that will give you a state of the world that you develop against. Okay. And so what then happens is you want to freeze those dependencies as is, right? Like, you don't want to accidentally, um, like, let's say you and I are working on a project together, Brian. You first uh, have the dependency specified in your pip file. You then run pipenv, and it's going to generate this pipfile.lock based on version 2.1 uh what's uh 3.7.1 of pytest and et cetera et cetera et cetera for all the dependencies yeah now we want to make sure we have some reproducibility in our environment right yeah because we all know testing against shifting dependencies is not fun you really want to get those dependencies pinned and consistent so that your test results are going to be the same across the board that means you need to lock your dependencies uh, down into your pipfile.lock so that when I then download the latest uh, in version of our code and I run git pull, if I run pipenv install, it's not going to look at the pip file, it's going to look at the pipfile.lock 
I go, oh, okay, well, you've pinned your dependencies to PyTest version 3.7.1 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to download those. I'm not going to look at your pip file and try to recalculate them all because you've basically agreed to as a team to this pip file.lock. Now, you can always update it later um, by updating things in your pip file or, or tell pipenv, hey, can you update this dependency because there's been a bug fix or what have you? But the key thing is, is the pipfile.lock is what you, you as a developer agree to with the rest of your team to make sure everyone's on the exact same page in terms of your dependencies. Okay, and um, I know that I know that uh, pipenv and poetry both um, support, and I don't know about flit or not. Actually, I'm not sure flit does this anyway. Um, a separation of the dependencies that are needed for the application to run or module to run and the dependencies needed for development. Like if I wanted to add PyTest or something to, to those dependencies. So that's separation. And, and flit does to support that. Okay. Is there a notion of that with pipfile.lock? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there you can, I believe you say pipenv install dash dash dev okay. and then pipenv will then install based on what gets flagged as uh, a dev dependency and same with flit and same with any of these other tools basically the all the tools seem to have at least come down to an agreement that you have what are your deployment dependencies like like in a django scenario let's say you're deploying out to azure to support my employer uh you're going to want to say all right here are my dependencies for when this application runs period and you got those but then you got your as you said your dev dependencies like i don't need to deploy pytest out to the cloud, I just need it here locally on my machine to run my tests. Okay. So you you want to make sure that when you deploy to the cloud, you're doing pip env install, and you're getting just the key things you have to have to run. But on your local machine, dash dash dev will then tell the lock file, look at the lock file, look for anything that has the optional dev true or dev false setting, and then that way it'll pull down exactly what you need to get your work done. Well, I really like. I mean, I like that the tools. Are starting. I'm kind of. I know that we're not there yet. We're not not to like you said. It's uh, we were in a bad place. We're in a better place. We can envision that there might be even better places, and we need to put things in place to make that happen. And that's cool. I also like that that's including the notion of like workflows. Um, mm-hmm. That um, people when you're developing, it's different than when you're testing, or different when you're deploying. Um, and possibly like thinking about, well, what if uh, you, you've got dependencies that are generic in one case, but they might be different for uh, different op- operating system deployments or something. Yeah. Um, and keeping in mind those workflows, that's what actually what I'm trying to get my head around uh, now. And we can't do this now in, in this conversation, but um, having the entire community kind of, Think about those workflows of how how do you actually use these tools to get stuff done in your day, um, and having it better supported I think is great because the I mean the requirements.txt always seemed like a little bit of a side hack to me. Um, I know it was that we didn't even bring that up, but um, but these uh, things like the pyproject.toml and um, pipenv are trying to kind of replace and poetry uh, replace things like requirements.txt, right? Also, yeah, exactly. Okay, no, they are. Um, just because requirements.txt files, as you pointed out, they just don't quite fit into modern day workflows. 
like they were they they were a solution to a problem people had and people still do have but it's just turned out the pro- we've realized what the real underlying problem is which is having a a way to specify your dependencies but b then have a way to specify your dependencies exactly for reproducibility okay. and requirements.txt file didn't have that concept <laughs> built in it became convention right this is why we have pip freeze cuz pip freeze all it does is just spit out yet another requirements.txt file but there's no notion of that is definitely a lock file. That is definitely the one you want to install. It's just potentially convention that you might call it requirements.freeze or requirements-frozen.txt or who knows what. Well, these other tools like Poetry and Pipenv have just gone down the route of defining their own um, convention of saying, like, this is how you very much separate the concept of just listing what your dependencies are and specifying what they happen to be exactly based on what you want to uh, deploy against. So do you think that we will have, um, in conversations with these other tool people that are building these things, do you think there will be a a standardized lock file format? Uh, Yes, purely based on the fact that I want it, and I will find the time someday in my life to make it happen. Uh, Yeah, I think everyone's kind of, we're slowly realizing, I think, we want people to have flexibility in their development workflows, but we want specifications in the resulting final artifact we want out of those workflows, right? Like getting us uh, wheels as the final artifact for libraries has been really freeing because it's allowed us to specify everything we need in a standardized way, while PyProject.toml has given us the freedom to have people have whatever workflow they want. So really the key thing is, is all we all have to agree on is what's the final thing tools like PIP and such are going to consume. Yeah. And having that centerized on wheels has been great for libraries. The next step is going to be, I think, applications. And having poetry and PIP both coexist is actually, I think, going to be helpful because it's allowed the community to try different approaches, see which ones work and which don't, see how people want things to go. Yeah. And then seeing basically how the dust settles. And then it's just going to be a matter of someone putting in the time and effort. But I th- I personally do think that a lock file format is going to be what we all care about in the end. And thus what we all want to work towards standardizing on somehow. Okay. Uh, and here's a uh, possibly c- contentious question. Mm. Uh, do you, I- any chance of, um, of uh, Pipenv moving towards um, just using uh, the pyproject.toml and, lock files that i don't know uh they were the dan ryan and uh i can't unfortunately remember the other uh pipm co-maintainer right now uh when i was talking about this on twitter they were both very amenable to the idea of coming up with the standard especially for the lock file okay. so whether or not they're willing to move get rid of pip file and move to pyproject.toml i'm not sure they might be if that's the way the wind blows in the community but they were definitely open to the idea of, you know, we don't, we're not married to pipfile.lock. If a spec came out in a pep that said, like, this is how we're going to do lock files, they were they okay. very willing to move towards that. Because one of the things I'm realizing is, is not only can different projects choose whatever they want to use as their packager to make their wheel, even within one project, you can have different, uh, different maintainers of the project like to, to work differently. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a pipenv person. But my uh, my one semi-active project so far on GitHub 
there's been people involved that said, I'd like to help out with this, but you don't have a, a PIP file published. Yep. Could you do that? And I, I don't have any problem with that, but that means like if I want to use Flit and the people using Pipin probably don't care whether I'm using Flit or Poetry as long as they can use Pipin also. But they all kind of have to stay in sync. Yeah. This is one of the reasons Pipin, for instance, allows you to export to a requirements.txt file. Yeah. So that they're using that as their kind of universal standard of a uh, requirements format. Okay. So... You're right. Usually at the tool level, typically you kind of have to standardize. You have to go like, okay, as a library, do I want to use Flit or do I want to set up tools? As an app, do I want to use Poetry or do I want to use Pipm? And you just kind of have to, yeah. at this point, choose one. Uh, or honestly, you can just go, I'm just going to use requirements.txt files and we're just always going to export to that. Um, but yeah, typically you have to, at least within a project, standardize. But at least as a wider community, you're given the freedom and or per project choose. But yeah. I would imagine trying to keep things in sync in a single project between multiple tools like that, that probably a little hard. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure you can write a tool to do it if you really want to make sure everyone updated, uh, ran that tool to update the pip file and the pyproject.toml appropriately. But I don't know if that headaches worth it for you i know we've answered a lot of questions and by we i mean you so thanks a lot for uh for being subjected to all these questions oh, i'm quite happy to help out and um i'm sure that there will be more questions that this this raises as well but i'm excited to see what where we go with this yeah i i'm really excited too i i i want to see what the community does i, I want to see what the community does with this new found freedom yeah and see what tools people develop and what workflows people come up with and see how it hopefully helps them work better. Uh, well, this has been fun. So thanks a lot for coming on and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Claim your $100 credit at do.co slash testandcode. Not only does that let you try their amazing service, but it also tells them that sponsoring this show is a good thing. That link is also on the show notes page at testingcode.com slash 52. Thank you to Brett for taking his time in researching and recording this episode. And thank you. Thank you for listening, for sharing the show with friends and colleagues, for supporting the show through Patreon, and for using the link in the show notes to try out DigitalOcean. That's all for now. Now maybe go try Flitter Poetry on a new project. Or if you don't know what to do next, write some more tests. <laughs>